The last time anyone saw Susan Streeter or Stacy McCall was over the weekend at this house in Battlefield. The girls had gathered here with some friends after graduating from Kickapoo High School on Saturday. They left here early Sunday morning. In this episode of Suspect Zero, the case of the Springfield Three. As we know, senior year of high school is an important time and a rite of passage for many students. Students feel a certain freedom into adulthood, and they believe that the decisions they make are now in an adult status and the next journey of their lives are now beginning. Unfortunately, this is where Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall didn't get to take that next journey, along with Susie's mother, Cheryl Levitt. Susie and Stacy were supposed to be staying at their friend Janelle Kirby's house. This is the night of their graduation. As they were at Janelle's house, the house was too crowded with family over for the graduation party. So they decided that they would leave Janelle's house to go back to Susie's house to sleep where they would have more room on Susie's brand new waterbed that she got for her, her graduation gift. Welcome to episode three of Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown yet the most terrifying. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield. Hi, Michael. Hey, Dawn. Good to see you again. This is, uh, this week, our third case is one, I mentioned this before, um, that we've been working on for a bit, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'll give a brief background of sort of how we stumbled across this. Yeah. So uh, my Cold Case Society, which is an unsolved crimes uh, think tank at the university where I teach um, and which has been the subject of a TED talk. And so I'll be sharing the link or the link is available on this podcast for that. Um, I basically select students each year and some other professors to um, use fresh eyes to analyze, you know, very strange unsolved crimes that don't have conventional leads or where those leads have been exhausted. So kind of like this podcast where there is zero clue who did it and there's no DNA. And what would, you know, someone with no prior knowledge of this case, no experience, um, what would they do in terms of brainstorming new investigative avenues? So I, I, I provide that opportunity to my students. I say, here you go. Uh, this is what's been done. This is what we're likely dealing with in terms of an offender. What would you do next? And we have a new case each year, and there's different ways that we select our cases. But this year, uh, after the pandemic, uh, we, considering we were working remotely, we decided to use uh, and examine a missing persons case. Missing persons, uh, plural, um, deemed dead now, very suspicious, uh, known only as the Springfield Three. And again, this is a case that I don't think a lot of viewers and listeners are going to have heard of, but is is chilling. And isn't that old for there to be no leads and no bodies ever found? So why don't you give uh, our fans a quick synopsis there, Don? So when you brought me in on this case, uh, I had presented this case to my students, and you're you're clearly a college professor. I am a high school uh, teacher of seniors. So when I presented this case to my students, it really kind of hit home because I teach seniors who come in September ready for prom and graduation. And that's all they're thinking about. 
So when you're thinking about what happened to the Springfield Three, my students really put themselves in the position of these of these girls. Um, and from that point, it was just they were really knee deep in this case. So the Springfield Three background, um, as we know, senior year high school is an important time and a rite of passage for many students. Um, so the students feel a certain freedom into adulthood. They believe that their decisions they make are now adult and their journey is about to begin. Unfortunately, this journey didn't happen for Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall. Uh, they would never have the chance to really begin that journey. Um, on June 7th, 1992, uh, they set out. Susie and Stacy were supposed to be showing up at a uh, water park with their friend. Um, but they were never, they never really contacted that friend in the morning after they were partying that night. Uh, they were supposed to stay at their friend uh, Kirby's house. And at that point, they decided that they were not going to sleep there because too many people were staying over as a result of the graduation party that was taking place. So they left uh, Branson, Missouri and drove all the way back to Springfield where, uh, where Susie lived because she had a waterbed and she said, let's go just stay in my waterbed tonight and it'll be a, a better place to be. So around two o'clock in the morning, they left Kirby's house to go back to Susie's house. And from that point, no one really knows what happened to Susie, Stacy, and also Susie's mother, Cheryl Levitt, who was in the house as well. So that's kind of the background of it. Um, their personal belongings were all left behind. No one really knows what happened to these three women at all. So what we've got is, as I mean, you've very eloquently described, is two young women at the precipice of starting basically the next chapter in their life. Uh, it's high school prom. It's an exciting time. Uh, they decide to go back to the one girl's house, Susie's house, because um, the other place was too crowded. So they're in her home. This is not, they're not having, you know, uh, a party there. It's just the two of them and Susie's mother who lives there. And all three women vanish without a trace from their own home and have never been found since 19, I mean, the last scene in, like you said, 92. And 92. here we are, 2021. And no suspects ever announced other than we will get to that. Someone who tried to take credit for it. And that confession has never been corroborated. It's also never been, I guess, refuted. But uh, interesting, the confession did not include the whereabouts of where their bodies are, which is in terms of uh, assessing the veracity or, or the, the truthfulness of a confession would be one of the things that you would have the confessor give up because obviously that would confirm they had a hand in or, or direct knowledge of the crime. This person, um, this confessor has never, has never given that information. So we have, uh, there's an urban legend that uh, they're entombed in the, in the concrete under a, a local parkade that was under construction at the time, a large parking garage. Someone went out a few years ago with an early model ground penetrating radar unit to see if there could be remains underneath a, a certain section of, of that garage and the results were kind of inconclusive. It suggested something was there, but GPR, ground penetrating radar technology has come a long way since then. Uh, but that was something that we looked at because urban legends in cases like this, I mean, the vanishing of, of three people, uh, low risk people. I mean, this wasn't a drug house. This wasn't a, uh, there, there was no criminal activity going on here that would bring people to the house 
who might act opportunistically or, or, or there's no large sums of, of, of cash or, or, or other goods in the house. Uh, I mean, this is naturally going to spawn a number of local theories. And one is that, yeah, they were, uh, the reason the bodies have never been found is given the location, either they were driven out of county and maybe out of state or they're, I mean, under this garage. But again, that was the theory with Jimmy Hoffa for years um, and is a convenient theory. But that was one avenue that uh, our students, I'll call them our students, you are now uh, a, a member of, of the Cold Case Society. And uh, that's something that, that we naturally had to look at. And what I'd like to do now is we're going to bring in the students who were part of this year's uh, group and uh, who undertook these, these tasks on the side when dealing with you know, their university studies amid a pandemic. And we're going to hear from them about the success of some of these investigative measures, their own theories, and uh, where we can maybe go next in terms of our investigation and, and where listeners and viewers um, can maybe help out. So, so let's now, we're going to come back after and we're going to talk more about uh, the theories, but let's give the students an opportunity now to, to, to come on and, and share their thoughts. Hi guys, thank you for joining us today and we're welcoming your perspectives on the Springfield 3 case. It's good to see everybody. I'm glad uh, for our viewers and listeners, this is not everybody but uh, who's part of this year's team, but uh, this was who was able to join us on short notice and some students who've done some remarkable work in this you know, puzzling, puzzling cold case. So um, let's sort of just open a discussion here for uh, our fans and let's talk about some of these what we call investigative action items that I assigned either you know, corroborate or refute some of the theories or to at least open up sort of some new lanes in terms of where um, authorities should be, should be exploring uh, based on current 21st century, you know, adequacy standards. So, uh, Patrick, you, you had some interesting tasks specifically yeah. regarding, you know, theories about where the bodies might be. Yeah, for sure. Um, I worked really closely with Abby and Sydney on this, and uh, you know, it sort of started out. They're doing a lot of construction beside where I live, and they were pouring a lot of concrete, and then that really got my gears turning about the theory that you know the burial site for these victims could be the Cox uh, Hospital parking garage. And uh, so Abby and Sydney and I, we sort of teamed up and tried to kind of dig into how we could find an answer one way or the other in terms of, you know, should we investigate this further or is it totally a write-off? And uh, you know what we found was it's actually a really challenging thing to get any definitive information without going in and digging it up, <laughs> which uh, I don't think we expected. I thought we were going to send a few emails and get some clear answers and be ready to go. Um, and maybe I'll throw it to, to Sydney because she got some pretty cool information from uh, some architectural experts. But the idea was we wanted to find the validity based on the case scenario that, you know, these bodies would potentially have to be buried a year before the building was put up, how deep they'd have to be buried so that they couldn't be dug up during construction. Like, is that plausible? And is that even possible? Because if it's totally not possible, then we can move on and find different theories to run down. Um, so we wanted just to kind of suss out the validity of that theory in general. And maybe I'll just toss it to Sydney then if that's okay, because she got some, some cool information on that. So um, my task was to find some architectural drawings or like Google images of the specific parking garage in question. 
Um, and we did end up finding like the location of this parking garage and um, kind of based on prior research, um, I was able to get in contact with Rick Norland, who was the original engineer who did the original GPR test. Um, so basically he was just, um, it's, it's kind of been hard to get in contact with some people on this particular theory because there's a lot of conflicting opinions of whether it's even possible for there to be bodies buried underneath this parking garage. Um, so let me just see. So aside from Rick Norland, he was kind of questioning the whole theory because of the timeline and how the construction process started kind of like a year after the women went missing. So he was kind of saying that um, it's probably um, unlikely, but with the GPR scan that was done and the three anomalies that were found, I think that's really significant because with the three anomalies found, I like, I think that it's just, it's kind of not really a coincidence. So I did some, some further digging and I was able to get in contact with like architectural technologists, um, and engineering technologists to kind of get their opinion on whether it's even possible for there to be bodies buried in the specific location. Um, so again, I kind of got some conflicting opinions on that. Um, basically the architectural technologist was saying that there is a possibility that they could be buried under this parking garage and the construction process may have actually missed this particular location. But then I've also had contrasting opinion where they were saying that throughout the construction process, there's no chance that like they would have not seen these bodies if they were there. So we're still kind of doing some digging on that. Um, and I was also contacting a, um, a geologist in the States and he was saying that um, there's definitely potential that there could be bodies there. And in other criminal cases, um, bodies have been buried under concrete so I'm wondering like if if the bodies were there would they be underneath the concrete entirely or maybe like within the concrete so I'm trying to get some more information as to if these anomalies were within the concrete itself or beneath the concrete so and Sydney wow. you said something interesting about the ground floor being poured if it was pillared or if there was actually a basement floor that was and we can't we can't verify that yet. We were digging into that. I know, Abby, you were looking into some some records to prove if um, there was, depending on how the the, con the foundation was poured, would either right. totally write it off as a possibility or, or it could be a chance. Um, do you want to expand on that just quickly? Because yeah, I, I thought sure. that was so interesting. So um, from the architectural technologists, they were saying that if there was no basement floor of this parking garage and only the ground floor being like the, the base floor, then there is a potential that the construction process may have missed this specific location because um, so basically in the construction process, if there was no basement, only the perimeter of the building would have been like excavated pretty deep. And um, basically he was saying that if these bodies were located near like closer to the middle or around like the central central area of the parking garage and they could have been missed because only the the trenches were essentially dug around like the perimeter of the building so i thought that was pretty interesting um let me just see and then i've also got conflicting kind of opinions where someone was saying that 
if bodies were located under the specific parking garage um, and essentially like decomposing, there would it would create like air pockets in the ground and the concrete wouldn't like be able to support like an, uh, a car's weight or something like that. So I've kind of had conflicting opinions about that, but still digging. That's an interesting perspective because a lot of bodies entombed in concrete, they're, you know, a, a, a surface lot or uh, some other structure that is not as um, specific in its engineering as something like a parkade where, yeah, they, they have to account for, for weight and stress and expansion and contraction. And yeah, three adult bodies entombed in, in a small space would, would foreseeably affect that. So that's, that to me stands out because, yeah, it's one thing to bury someone under, say, a building and a foundation. But when you have something, whether it's a parkade or a library or a bank, or uh, where the structure needs to take into consideration additional weight than the weight leaves, I mean, libraries just have ever accumulating weight. Um, that's interesting that something, there would be some kind of structural integrity problem if, if the bodies were there. So that to me stands out. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, in addition, I, I reached out to this, it's from a geo model company. Um, so basically I just asked like, is it even possible for there to be bodies buried in a specific location? His response was pretty like to the point, but he was just saying that, Yes, bodies um, have been buried under concrete in specific murder cases. Um, yes, it's possible to detect bodies under the concrete. It's also possible that these GPR anomalies are not bodies, but something else. Um, and he was saying GPR technology is very common in criminal cases similar to this. So, Right. We've used actually GPR as part of the cold case society in a, not on concrete, but in a farmer's field a few years ago in that find of ours remains under investigation. So, um, yeah, that's an avenue that we can continue to explore. Um, who else wants to, to chime in? Just on the parking garage theory, um, note, I, uh, so I was in contact with the Springfield city planning department, trying to get some of those drawings or any history on the construction of the building, because the thought was that if we have some of those drawings, it can give us a point blank answer of if there's a basement floor and essentially how far they had to dig. Because if they were digging 10 feet down, well, we know that this is just over and done with as a theory. But they were only able to, the planning department was only able to direct me to who built it. Um, and they gave me their informa information. I reached out to them, haven't heard back in about a month which um, is fair because they are a much larger company than they were back then. And they were able to give me just some of the kind of invoices and stuff to know the exact timeline of the building schedule. But after that, not a whole lot else. But I will say I was impressed on how um, they did, you know, indulge my request and not, you know, ask why and think I'm just some punk trying to figure Meddling out this case on yeah. my own. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think for as wild a theory it is with the amount of time that it's taken up of people's interest, it is still definitely worth reviewing. In an ideal world, I think we could go to where Rick Norland found those three anomalies, dig a hole, get some cadaver dogs, 
and get an answer that way. But getting the amount of reasonable evidence that that would be worthwhile has just been difficult. Yeah, I mean, saying you want to go jackhammer up the concrete in a hospital parking lot during a pandemic isn't going to go over very well if you don't no. have a, a mountain of, of supporting evidence. And what we've got here is a little bit of this and a little bit of that and the urban legend. But um, right. yeah, I mean, we, we have to, this is a loose end that still needs to be tied up, unfortunately. It's sort of one of those things that's neither verifiable nor, nor falsifiable. So what do you right. do with it? I mean, I, I feel like there's just one more piece of evidence needed uh, in this case, whether it's a, a, you know, a genuine confession or whether it's the recovery of some of clothing, something that will, that will point us in the right direction. What, what I'm frustrated about is a seemingly um, you know, tepid, lukewarm interest on behalf of, of police. Like, where's the anniversary stories? Where's the, not that, I mean, there's no evidence that reward money um, actually translates into actionable leads. Um, but, I mean, where is the, we're keeping this case sort of alive. Where, what's everybody else doing? Yeah. People don't really want to speak a lot on this case. It, it's strange because you, um, you know, as I told you when we were working on the case initially, I had reached out to the journalist who brought in the the concrete, you know, theory um, and her response to me because I had asked her to come into my class and maybe speak to my students on how she really came about what she because I wanted them to learn some investigative things. Um, so, you know, her response to me was, I don't mind coming in, but I I, I cannot discuss my suspects, you know, um, with an S. And I, I made note of that. And she also said that, uh, you know, I still live in this particular place and I cannot risk being, um, you know, confronted by anybody with the information that I do have. So I feel like she actually kind of halted where she was in her tracks as well because of that. And that's why, you know, a lot of it hasn't really gone forward so there is a fear there and I've said this before I I kind of feel like there's a seedy underbelly to this I'm not sure where it's coming from but um a couple of couple of coincidences that have taken place in the case as well with the phone calls and when they were searching the house and you know things that haven't even been revealed and then also the the entire crime scene was was just destroyed you know, how do you even allow that to happen? I, I, you know, why don't we talk quickly about the phone calls for our listeners? So um, when Janice McCall, well, actually, it started, it's really started with Janelle Kirby when she went to go search the house. And as she's searching the house, some obscene phone calls came through that she had answered very sexual in nature. Um, and she hung up and kind of dismissed them. Uh, and then there was another phone call uh, or a recorded call on the answer machine that Stacy's mother had uh, listened to and that inadvertently got erased. Um, and I'm just curious, like, do the police have phone records? I mean, you're able to get phone records and, you know, to see who maybe the incoming calls or the outgoing calls at some point, And they were never even discussed. Yeah. And I mean, we know that obscene telephone calls, uh, I mean, sometimes... And there, I mean, this is sort of a bygone, now it takes on a digital form, which is why I've been saying cyberbullying is often paraphilic and sexual in nature because it's a, a digital version of what we call telephone scatologia, which is um, uh, within the sadistic spectrum and, and the enjoyment of listening, because we know sadists are very acoustically based. 
listening to the fear and trepidation and, 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 and terror in whoever you're, you're making these, these obscene or threatening statements to. So, I mean, obscene telephone callers don't typically just do that. And if they're targeting a particular residence, uh, they may be voyeurizing or, or monitoring the residence. There may be a particular target there that they're especially excited about terrifying. And uh, ultimately, in many cases, the calls become, are, they become unable to, to satisfy the offender and they need to escalate to the, to the next step. So that in itself is, is huge because uh, there's been lots of theories floated that this was um, you know, part of organized crime or that there was um, maybe they owed money um, but you factor in the phone calls with the, the fact you have three female victims, uh, including two teenagers. I mean, this speaks to me of, of an obvious sexual motive. Um, there's no ransom demand ever made, uh, nor really an ability to pay one from what I understand. And you mentioned that this, this person talks about suspects, plural. Well, I can tell you, uh, because the thought is, well, how do you control three people? Well, you can control three civilians, including two teenagers, very effectively with, by brandishing a gun. And that goes without saying. So a single offender with a gun could very easily, and we see this in, in, in a number of cold cases where there's no um, bindings used, there's no defensive wounds. It seems the victim went willingly to a location. Uh, and the thought is, well, why would they go? Well, again, a firearm can have tremendously persuasive powers. And this goes back to my talks about victimology, whereby going to a secondary crime scene or how the crime ends ultimately boils down to split-second decisions made by, by victims, which can hinge on a number of things, whether it be age, life experience, confidence, or what have you. So I'm leaning, especially when you know unpacking all this, regardless of where the bodies ended up, to a, a, a sexual motivation. Anyone else want to chime in on that? Cara, we haven't heard from you yet. Yeah, um, so my task was to gather like media coverage and everything I could find online about the case and compile it into a document just so we could kind of go back and see everything that's out there about it. Um, and in doing that, I also went through and found names of reporters or any kind of names I thought would be uh, relevant to contact um, and just put that into a list. And I know I know Nisha was kind of going through that and contacting people that she thought was relevant. Um, and one thing that I did um, end up doing through the media coverage, there was a book published in September 2020. Um, it's called Gone in the Night, the Story of the Springfield Three. Um, and it's a fictional book, but it's mixed with nonfiction. So I wasn't sure if it would be really worthwhile to reach out to the author. But I did end up speaking to one of the authors, uh, Brian Brown. Um, and I just kind of asked about um, his experience with writing the book and if anything kind of came out of it, even though it was fictional, um, just if there was anything like they, I believe he lived in uh, Springfield or near Springfield at the time. So um, he kind of like they used the real information, but then turned it into a fictional um, investigation. Um, and he had some kind of interesting things to say, I guess, after the book was published, they, uh, people were going forward and saying different theories that they thought uh, may have happened based on whether they knew the people or lived there or just things that they had heard. Um, and he sent three of the most common theories, um, one of which was that the women were buried under the three horses sign at PFI Western Wear, um, which is a huge clothing store, apparently. Um, the other that the women were buried in the parking garage at Cox South, which we've really obviously discussed. Um, and then 
another one that the girls were buried under a house in West Springfield. Um, so I guess, yeah, there were kind of a bunch of different theories about what happened. And most people seem to think that drugs were involved and that Cheryl may have knew, uh, known some people who were a little like, I don't know, some individuals who may have been involved with that. Um, but he kind of said based on everything that he didn't really think that drugs were involved just because he thought it would maybe have been solved by then. Um, and also going off kind of um, the sexual motive, like the, I believe Cheryl had $800, the media said um, in her purse and that was left behind. So um, it, it does seem like it, if it was for money or even a little bit for money, like a robbery or whatever, they would have taken that. And I think the fact that that was left seemed a little bit suspicious. Um, but yeah, and then also kind of how you guys were talking before about the difficulties in speaking with people um, throughout this yeah. case. Uh, Brian had kind <laughs> Very of- Very difficult. Yeah, and Brian, who was just the author of the book, so it wasn't like he was like a detective or anyone who kind of, I think had anything to lose with speaking to me. He was very hesitant to even speak with me because he said there's been some people that have tried to get information from him, but won't disclose anything really about themselves and who they are. And so it's like strange kind of motives and getting the information from him. Um, and then he kind of mentioned a few names that he thought would be willing, like worth speaking to, but basically said good luck with trying to speak to them. And he he expressed the same difficulty with how it's been a very interesting um, case to kind of break through and talk to people about. He also mentioned one thing um, for his theory, just, just because I was kind of in the media, so I was kind of seeing the other theories that were discussed. Um, but his was, he believed that there was one abductor or maybe two, um, but he thought that maybe if there were several people involved that someone probably would have broken by now and spoken out about it um, just because he said it did uh, garner a lot of media coverage at the time um, and he also was thinking that it could, he believes maybe somebody followed the girls home from Janelle's and then tried to get them out of the house and thought it could maybe even be someone dressed as a cop or something just because I don't I don't really know he didn't really elaborate on that but I thought that was kind of interesting given how secretive um, things have been about the case um, but yeah I I feel like the, I don't know, there's just a lot to it that I, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what an exact theory would be about it, but the, it was kind of interesting to hear what other people were coming forward and saying. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know who it's, it's such a crazy, like there's, cause based on the media coverage, there's been quite a few suspects in this case and most of them haven't been ruled out because they, they nothing's come out since everything that's we already know. Um, so to me, I, I see so many different possible motives based on the different um, potential suspects that they might have. Um, and then another thing also about the media that I noticed while or I was thinking about while you guys were just speaking is that they do there is quite a bit of coverage that's come out since, but it's always just saying the exact same thing. There's nothing really new coming out or like not even, yeah, trying to get new information out. It's just basically a repeat article summarizing what is already known. It's not trying to do more to get people to come forward. It's just saying this case happened 25 years ago. Um, this is what happened and leaving it at that. It's not like, oh, okay, like if you've heard of this or anything like they're not, they don't seem like they're trying to get more out of it. They just are kind of repeating what they've already said and I'm not seeing much more coming through from it, but. That book you mentioned, that's interesting. So there is a, a term for a book like that. It's called a roman à clé or a book with a key. And a lot of well-known books uh, have been written like this, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Things They, they Carried uh, by Tim O'Brien. This is uh, a way that you can take a true story and largely for liability reasons, fictionalize it. Doesn't diminish or dilute the truthfulness of it or the importance of it, but you just the, the names and places have been changed to protect the innocent, sort of as they they used to say in Dragnet. Um, and I mean, that's that's really interesting. The timing of that book being released at the same time, you know, that we're trying to, um, you know, 
breathe new life into this case that, as you said, Cara, has really just sort of been uh, dust off last year's press release and, and, and put it back out there again with absolutely no, no new ideas, no new engagement strategies for the public to, to solicit tips because, and this, this again goes to, I think Brian is right. If you have a folie à deux with you know, two or more offenders with a shared psychosis or, or set of paraphilias, um, after this uh, length of time, if one didn't break, one is for sure going to get pinched for some other crime and will use this to, to, as, as major leverage. And um, this, this speaks to a rogue single offender, in my view, uh, with a sexual motive. Michael, going back to the suspects also, there are a lot of suspects in this case. I mean, you well, that's know, the problem is, is this is not a case where you have, uh, you know, no, like too few suspects and nothing to go on. You have all the usual suspects to the point that there's, it's just white noise. Uh, you've got people confessing uh, to it uh, with no, no evidence to support their confession. You've got people pointing the finger. I mean, this is... Uh, you know, a small town, not that small, but, you know, Main Street America at the foot of the Ozarks and uh, multiple generations of the same people there for years. And it becomes impossible at some point to disaggregate the rumor mill and urban legend from actionable deeds. And it just seems that uh, eventually the police just stop trying. Um, and because what, what do you do with this information? Again, short of jackhammering the concrete uh, or... Um, you know, rousting every single male in town and, and seeing what you get. And we've seen that there's all kinds of stories that, that are coming out. My guess is um, this offender has other victims, obviously. I mean, this is not a neophyte offender. This is a mid-career or, or experienced sophomore uh, who, I mean, to be able to go in, enter a, a private residence and abduct three people at gunpoint or using any means of coercion, you don't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to dip my toe into this. It's, you have experience with probably uh, bindings, you have experience with, with weapons, and you will have certainly, uh, whether it's obscene telephone calling or, or other preparatory sexual crimes, you will have other victims and subsequent victims. And that's one thing in the media too. Um, the one uh, the neighbor saw, I guess, them going out to the or at six o'clock in the morning. I guess she saw a van, which I know we've kind of talked about while we've worked on this case. Um, and she like swore that she saw, I believe it was Susie driving the van and heard someone, a man's voice say, don't do anything, like just reverse and don't do anything stupid or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, I feel like, especially kind of thinking of if it were one offender with a, a gun, then just held it to them and said, you drive and let's go. Like it does seem like something you would need to kind of be completely prepared for and have the experience of doing to get three women to leave without even a little bit of a noise indicating something was wrong. And by having one of them uh, who poses perhaps the, the biggest threat, uh, neutralized by having them drive the vehicle so that they're not uh, out of sight or behind you plotting with the others that removes them from the equation and allows the offender complete control which again speaks to the fact this is someone who has who has done this or some version of this before and and that's why um, I mean really I think the next step is looking at similar uh, crimes, you, you're going to get the phone book. There's going to be thousands. But whether it's one, two, three victims, uh, again, there's only a handful of, of three or more victim abductions. 
uh, on record, but at, you know, one or two, um, or even, yeah, just what seem to be isolated incidents in other states. This, this suggests to me uh, someone who is, as part of their criminal career, made this a habit. Now, at one point, um, there was a suspect, Stephen Eugene Garrison, who I brought up before in our cold case, because when you gave the tasks out, I thought I had to like really jump in like completely head first. Um, so what I did was I, I actually sent an email to him because he had said that he had a friend who told him at a drunken party that he was involved in this. And then they ended up going to the farm to see that van that you were just talking about um, and that they were buried on on this farm, apparently. I did a little investigative work on the farm, which is something that um, people do not want to talk about really at all. Um, and the person owning the farm has some ties to some drug, uh, I don't know, some drug things that are going on there that shouldn't be. But um, but when I emailed him initially, he was ver- he was he was almost ready to speak, thinking that I was a girl like just writing him a letter. And then when he realized that, you know, I told him I'm a true crime teacher, I, I kind of want to essentially pick your brain, you know, and and then he was like, are you a cop? You know, I, I don't want to talk to cops. And then he got all like, you know, nervous or something. And, he was, you know, so at that point, I kind of backed down and said, you know, maybe I should approach this a different way. But he was one of the there, there's so many. And, and, and I said this before, a lot of serial killers in, in Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> Yeah. At the time, at the time anyway. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's the sort of specter of the boogeyman around this case and nobody wanting to talk. I mean, again, a lot of people have put weight on the fact that this points to some conspiracy organized crime. In reality, sort of like, I mean, there's all kinds of examples that that I can think of. But I mean, a a good one would be David Lynch's series uh, Twin Peaks, whereby there's a murder in a, in a smallish town. And uh, what it does is the investigation peels back the veneer on everyone's lives and airs everybody's dirty laundry, not because they're involved, but they just come into the orbit of an investigation. And all of a sudden it turns out that this person's up to this and this person's up to that because nobody's ever really questioned them. And everyone just wants this to go away because it's, um, there's collateral damage. And uh, ultimately, people's privacy and trying to um, keep their name out of it becomes more important than actually solving the case, which is an unfortunate um, commonality in a lot of cold cases, which is that rather than closing ranks, uh, everyone runs for cover and into a foxhole during the investigation. There's that element, too, that you know, with the initially the anonymous tip line was getting so flooded with theories and psychics and everyone knew an answer or knew a guy who knew a guy that (laughs) it created like these theories that bubbled to the surface. Like, you know, there is, there's evidence of mob organized crime, people being buried under concrete. But if that just came, you know, that, that theory got, you know, validated through untraditional means. And now it's something that we're kind of running down. So there's a lot of sort of red herrings that are created just by the flood of you know, information that came in initially. I'm actually, go on. I was just say, I think that with the, you know, all of the tips coming in, of course they, you know, did their duty and followed up on them. But a lot of the other ones kind of from in the moment got overlooked. Again, going back to the messages, they, in every single release I've seen, they've just been, you know, a prank call or just brushed off as not important. 
but it would be almost impossible for it to be a coincidence for that exact host and it to happen three times all while this is happening. So the things, the real time evidence is what they're just tossing off to chance. And it's all the, I don't want to say wild goose chase, but that's the only word I can think of. Um, crazy, crazy parking garage theories are the ones that people are getting so tied up in and putting all of their time and energy into. Well, and it's taken up a lot of our time just because that, again, is, is something that needs to be uh, ruled out. Because if we, if we can, then, uh, a whole, uh, like I said, a whole new lane opens up. I'm actually surprised of all the, the bonkers theories that, that uh, have been floated around this case, that Satanism is not one of them, that they weren't taken and, and sort of right. into a cult or, or sacrifice or something, because everything but that, and, and this is sort of at the, at the, at the later stage of the, the uh, satanic scare of, of, the, yeah, of, the, of the 80s, and I'm, I'm quite surprised that that, that hasn't been um, included, but, um, and that's not to make light of it, but just the, that, that gives, I think, people a sense of just the wall-to-wall -wall conjecture that uh, has bogged this case down and and hopefully hasn't made it unsolvable, but has certainly made our, our, our work all that more difficult. Well, listen, uh, thanks everyone for uh, who was able to make it today and, and join us. I know it's the end of term, everyone's busy, but uh, you've all done remarkable work and, and moved the needle on this to the point that... Um, I think there's enough through this podcast and through what I can share with, with law enforcement that um, something will be done one way or another and that this case will not be consigned to the dustbin of history anymore. Okay, so everyone take care and thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. So, Michael, um, working with our Cold Case Society has proven to be extremely productive. Um, you know, I didn't even realize how important our work really was. And in seeing the students come together and even joining forces to figure out, you know, the crime, I, I think we got even further than we thought we were going to get, honestly. Yeah, and to put things in perspective, I mean, here's a 30-year-old a, a case and we're investigating this from hundreds of miles away. Uh, but this is, and, and, and look at what we were able to do in terms of connections, in terms of refuting theories, uh, or if not refuting them, um, diminishing them in favor of relying on the science and other cases and, and the data. And I mean, this is all, this, this just goes to show uh, the effectiveness of civilian uh, investigation in cold cases. Not intrusive, not, and this goes back to the TED talk I talked about um, at the start of the episode. Uh, not intrusive, not meddling, uh, but productive, factual, uh, factual, uh, science-driven research, so we can call it research instead of sleuthing perhaps, that uh, can allow, much like an effective offender profile. Uh, it's, it's not pinpointing necessarily where the bodies are or who the killer is but it allows investigators to make informed decisions and prioritize uh, and marshal the resources based again on on what the evidence says and what has been seen in other cases offenders and cases have common characteristics over the years and when you look at what is called the homology principle for our viewers and listeners basically means that uh, or this is the whole basis for offender profiling criminal investigative analysis which is that offenders who find a 
successful method of carrying out their crime, a successful MO, will stick to that MO because it's proven successful in the past. So we, we stick with what we know. At the same time, offenders who share a common MO, whether it's over the years or over different states, at the same, in the same year or over the same period, tend to have certain things in common. Offenders who travel outside of their, um, their familiarity zone. area and comfort zone to offend and who strangle and then transport the victim to a second crime scene, they're all going to have similar life histories and similar socioeconomic and demographic uh, things in common because they've got access to a car, a, a private access to a car. They've chosen to strangle for some reason. They have confidence enough to... Uh, travel the body on board in the middle of the night and, and, and the risk of that is worth the reward of the body not being found or going to a second crime scene for some other ritualistic or sexual purpose. Right. If that is your life, you're going to have, again, uh, things in common with other offenders who, who, who do that. And there's been a, studies on this done by um, the FBI as recently as 2016 that say, yeah, Offenders who transport or versus those who dump versus those who, who leave bodies at the original crime scene have overwhelming um, biographical uh, details in common. We're going to be going over some of those in coming weeks. So that's what we call homology, which is that, um, and these again are things that the resources in this case uh, that we can share with law enforcement, drawing on those same studies, which I guarantee have not been applied to this case. Well, I really hope that this case gets solved and I hope it's not too far gone. So, you know, just keep chipping away and we'll just keep, you know, doing what we have to do up against what we are up against. Exactly. Truthfully. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the purpose of the mission. This is, you know, purpose-driven academic research for victims, which is why then now uh, the next chapter in our work is the creation of this podcast, not to uh, celebrate the crimes, but to remember the victims and to uh, ideally close some of these cases and in the cases we're examining that uh, are solved and the offenders in custody teach people what we can learn from these people so they can avoid being victims of another suspect zero exactly thanks everyone for joining us I'm Dawn Washburn with my co-host Dr. Michael Arntfield see you next time on Suspect Zero in the next episode of Suspect Zero the case of Mike DeBardeleben, a.k.a. the Mall Passer. 